Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. The film which you are about to see is an account of the murder and tragedy surrounding one idyllic weekend at Failing Hope Summer Camp in 1983. A series of traumatic events escalating with the appearance of a masked psychopathic killer and the deaths of 15 victims during a single night's madness. Of the campus and staff, only one female camper survived. This is the story of her nightmarish ascension, from innocent girl next door to blood-caked survivor. The events of this weekend were to lead to a legacy of summer camp bloodbaths and sleepover tragedies. It seems to have no end. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, just as a reminder, this is one of our October 2015 episodes where we are trying to incorporate all things scary and spooky and October and Halloween themed into the show. That includes... Monster Science, which is our video series that will have a new season at the end of the month, beginning on October 20th. We'll have four new episodes of Monster Science. That's right. VHS-laden, daytime horror-host-inspired explorations of the real science that potentially underlies some of the more interesting monstrous specimens from our horror cinema. Yeah, and I should point out, too, to clarify that uh, these videos are going to be available uh, you'll be able to watch them on HowStuffWorks.com. They will share them on our social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And uh, they'll also be on the HowStuffWorks uh, YouTube channel, I believe. Yes. So check them out there. And another thing that we're going to be doing that's brand new in October is we're going to be trying out Periscope. We've just had so much listener mail lately, and we want to take an opportunity to respond to it that we decided instead of doing a listener mail episode, let's try Periscope out. We'll do a few listener mails. We'll see how it goes, and we'll interact with you out there who are tuning in. So uh, my understanding is that you can talk in real time via like text, I think, uh, on Periscope. So Joe, Robert, and I are going to be doing that at the end of the month. Keep an eye out for more information about when we'll be doing it so you can tune in. All right, so as our hopefully entertaining little uh, bit at the beginning of this episode uh, illustrates, we're talking about a familiar trope in the world of horror cinema. We're talking about final girls and how that plays into uh, our culture, our perception of gender, into feminist theory, into film critiquing, into basically the, the symbology that informs our lives. Yeah, and so if you're not familiar with this trope, the basic idea of a final girl is that in horror movies, mainly slasher horror mm-hmm. movies, the survivor, the final survivor is usually uh, a young woman uh, who has somehow outsmarted the slasher uh, killer mm-hmm. uh, and is the only one that survives. And, and oftentimes it's because uh, uh, she's outsmarted them or she's, you know, somehow uh, engaged in a way that the victims were not. Right? Yeah, or she finds this hidden strength to finally fight back against her adversary and, and stab the heck out of him for a change. Yeah, and that evolves over the course of... Well, I guess like we could say that this maybe started in the 60s uh, and leading up to present day slasher films. And there's a there's a whole host of academic literature that looks into this one particular trope. So, yeah, this is not um, particularly quantitatively heavy science episode, but we felt like it was really important both because it fits into our theme for the month and because we're all horror fans here, but also because horror stories are just a really important way that we as human beings try to make sense of our world. They're the scary stories that we used to tell around the fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also are important cultural texts that have popularity to them. You know, and these movies in particular are especially popular with adolescents. Uh, and they're also considered out, outsider cinema to a certain extent. Even though they make a lot of money, uh, slasher films in particular are just on the outside of mainstream acceptance, right? So there's something interesting going on there about how it fits in and doesn't fit into our mainstream culture. 
I also want to uh, quote a study by a guy named Mark Edmondson here at the beginning, where he says that the horror film gathers up all of our free-floating anxieties, binds them to a narrative, and brings that anxiety under temporary control. So if you step back from the gore and the kind of silliness of slasher films, there's something deeper going on there that you can look at and kind of try to, I guess, decrypt. Uh, if, as to what's going on in society, what's happening within our culture right now, and what that says about us. Yeah, and plus, when you look at horror films in particular, but also various exploitation films and you know, outsider films as well, like these are often the first filters that we run our cultural anxieties through. Yeah. Way before you know some Oscar-nominated picture tackles it in maybe a more nuanced and tasteful way. You know, it's a good example of that. What's that? In this case, Silence of the Lambs. Oh yeah. So we had like a good 20, maybe 30 years of slasher films before Silence of the Lambs was That's right, considered yeah. a classic. And then it wins the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah, so some films like that will eventually come along and pick up some of these vibes and some of these cultural anxieties. But the, the horror film, like the, the early horror exploitation film, that's where you'll see us grappling with it for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so let's start by, uh, sort of giving you some examples here. So my favorite final girl has got to be Ellen Ripley. Oh, yeah. Alien. Uh, and that's not necessarily a slasher movie, although I guess an argument could be made that the alien is sort of a, a slasher. In oh, yeah. Right. I think it functions the same way as a slasher movie for sure. It's a very masculine, phallic entity. Uh-huh. A lot of sexuality bound up in it. And then Ridley Scott is the first to admit that it's essentially a haunted house picture in yeah. space. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so, you know, if you need some uh, other examples, uh, the classics are uh, Laurie Strode, the Jimmy Lee Curtis character in the first two Halloween movies. Pretty much every Friday the 13th movie, right, has a final girl in it. I yeah. can't think of a single one that ends with a guy living instead of... No, uh, I, I think... They have, and granted, my all my Friday the 13th viewing took place like on a late night USA yeah. Network uh, a, over a decade ago. Frankly, they all kind of blend together after yeah. a while. Last year, my wife and I tried to watch, I think, like all of them in a row. And they just even watching them all in a row in like a week or two, it just turned into one amorphous <laughs> mess. Yeah. Well, you got Sally in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Nancy from the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And then, of course, the Nev Campbell character, Sydney in the Scream movies, which... I think the Scream movies tried to do a little, they tried to do kind of a postmodern-y thing with final girls and horror genre expectations. Yeah. But, but ultimately it fulfills the final girl trope. There's some recent ones too, like, uh, that movie You're Next, the, uh, home invasion movie with the, mm-hmm. the guys with the animal masks. Uh, the, the final girl in that was particularly, uh, Adventurous, I guess I would say. Like, I was really surprised at how, like, physically competent she was. I think, like, the, the gimmick of that movie is, like, it turns out that, like, she's not this helpless ingenue and that, like, it turns out she's, like, from the Australian outback or something like that and uh-huh. has all these skills that uh, enable her to just utterly decimate these, <laughs> these guys invading the home that she's in. And then there's the 2013 remake of Evil Dead does a really good job of this by uh, replacing the Ash character with this character Mia who ultimately ends up saving the day. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that remake. I know a lot I of people were too. mixed on that, but I I I loved it. I thought it was beautifully shot. It and it was it felt dangerous. It felt like a mm-hmm. dangerous horror film that I did I had no idea where things were going to go, which is especially uh, potent when you're considering that it's a reboot and a remake. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was also wary of it, and I uh, I thought that the the creator I can't remember his name right now, but just did an excellent job, uh, really kind of injecting new life into that series, but also making like a really yeah beautiful, be- beautifully shot, and also just terrifying movie. I mean, there was stuff in that movie. I consume a lot of horror fiction mm-hmm. in uh, all kinds of uh, different media and yeah that that movie definitely uh, raised my my uh, goosebumps um, another recent film Jay uh, the character Jay in it it follows oh yeah uh, which is uh, yeah. one I, I really loved and um, it follows is especially interesting to look at the final girl trope as well mm-hmm. because it's all about uh, 
sexuality and the repercussions of sex in a way that the final girl trope has revolved around for decades. Yeah, except it deals with it in a in a, in a more reserved way, I feel, mm-hmm. a more intelligent way. It's yeah. Because you could have easily made it a very sleazy 80s uh, film with the same premise. Yeah. Uh, but it goes in a, a more thoughtful indie direction. Another beautiful horror movie. I love the way that oh, yeah. was shot. Beautiful soundtrack, beautifully mm-hmm. shot. Um, Sarah in The Descent. Oh, uh, yeah. One of my favorites. That's a complicated one, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to spoil that movie at all, but Sarah does some stuff that is morally ambiguous in order yeah. to make it to the end. It is. It, there's, there's, that one's definitely uh, complicated. The two lead, and another complicated one is, are the two leads in the French horror film High Tension. Right. Which, you were telling me about this earlier. I haven't seen this movie. Yeah, a lot of it hinges on some big spoilers, so I'm going to refrain. But if you haven't seen it, that one's a real nail-biter. Uh, you already mentioned uh, Sally Hardesty from um, the, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre right. mu- movie, but also Stretch. In the second one is also a very strong example and one that's often cited in some of the, the, the texts about final girls because yeah. she, that's a mixed picture with a lot of weird elements, but, uh, the, the ending is pretty, pretty stellar. And as we'll talk about in a moment throughout the history of this final girl trope and sort of how it reflects our, cultural treatment of gender and also of our anxieties, there's an interesting thing that you you can sort of trace throughout the history, and Sally is a good marker point for that, although I'd also argue that Psycho is as well, mm-hmm. where that the, the final girls end up going from being fairly passive and not really uh, having agency in their survival to where we've got that year next version where, like, you know, the, the final girl has these just amazing survival skills that allow her to just constantly outwit the enemy. Yeah, you, you see this cultural evolution, really, right? Because the, your earliest examples, even like pre, not even horror film, but you have your damsel in distress, right? right. You look at old monster movies, and it's just, when's the guy going to come and shoot the monster and save the screaming girl? The girl can hardly run from the monster because she faints while screaming. Right. She's that helpless, right? right? Yeah, I, I just rewatched The Shining last night on uh, <laughs> on the big screen. They played it here mm-hmm. at the Plaza Theater in Atlanta. And I lo- that is my favorite movie of all time. I love that movie. But yes, there are multiple scenes in that, and that's uh, 1980. But uh, where um, the, the female lead and that is just constantly like falling down all over herself and screaming and crying and barely able to make it away from from her maniac husband. So like your early examples are that, right? That the, yeah. the, the final girl survives just by outrunning the horror. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, maybe it's just even pure dumb luck. It has nothing to do with any strength of character or survival skills. But then it begins to evolve into something else. So we see this kind of transition, right? And there's two different ways to look at it, too. In the 70s, there's this brief uh, sort of renaissance in horror where, you know, uh, horror movies are sort of progressive. They're challenging norms, especially the depictions of female subjectivity. But then in the 80s, there's this idea that they're denying that status, right? Yeah, that they get maybe a little more exploitive and schlocky and kind of the, the trend setting that takes place in the genre in the 70s then be, kind of comes the cruising standard. But then there's also sort of an argument to be made in the, in the woman who actually created the term final girl uh, makes this point that there's, there's also a, a reversal from the passive final girl in the 70s movies leading up to the 80s or I guess late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. uh, that even though those movies are more exploitive and less narratively interesting, maybe yeah. that uh, uh, that at least those final girls have like a, a certain amount of agency to them. Yeah, they begin to f- to to fight back, to to outfight and outthink their opponents. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you know, like before we get into this, I should mention too, like. Like, we're not the only ones who are sort of fascinated by this subject. In fact, there was a movie that came out, I think, two years ago that was called Final Girl that was all about sort of subverting the trope of the final girl. And then there's another movie coming out, I think, in like two or three months called Mm -hmm. Final Girls that looks like it's sort of like a meta horror comedy kind of deconstructing the whole final girl uh, trope. Yeah. Cabin in the Woods, of course, also uh, toyed with this a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. All right, so let's before we get into to the final girl um, scenario more, let's let's back up and just talk about one of the key primary criticisms that are often, that's often leveled at horror by serious commentators, and that's that horror films are essentially about the destruction of women. Um, they're hunted, they're tormented, they're killed, they scream, they faint. 
The male monsters often get to observe their nudity or a carnal act before they then pounce out. You know, they get to observe the the, the female sexual power, ultimately the the, the reproductive power of, mm-hmm. of females, and then they punish them for it. They punish them for their sexuality, uh, repress that their dangerous power of reproduction, slicing the feminine power of reproduction with the male power of death. And this is a stance that you will find, you, you probably will find still today in a lot of sort of, you know, critical looks at horror, but definitely in like academia, the 80s and 90s, when it was really starting to look at horror uh, cinema, there was a this sort of stance that well of course this is you know abject and terrible towards women uh there were studies that like did some uh analysis interviewing male horror viewers and finding out that they reported that they enjoyed slasher films significantly more than their female counterparts did and that their enjoyment it was heightened by the company of a distressed woman so there's something about watching a horror movie that that uh excited men when their, you know, girlfriend or wife or whatever was with them and and scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other side, there was a study that was done by two guys, Nolan and Ryan. These are their last names. Uh, and they did like a gender association uh, with words about the movies. And they found that uh, all genders uh, associated the words disturbing, horror, girls, evil, scary, killer, and young with horror movies. Now, you just go to men. Men associate the words shocked, angry, helpless, agitated, and frustrated, while women associate with fear, nervousness, vulnerability, horrified, exposure, and betrayal. So they make a case, basically, by doing this word analysis, that female viewers were not being empowered by watching horror movies, as some... Uh, you know, we'll get into as some uh, academics argued, no matter who gets to live at the end, whether it's a male character or a female character, they didn't feel empowered. And instead, they were identifying with the unlucky victims. <laughs> you know, this reminds me a bit of a Kumail Nanjani bit. Oh, yeah. Does in his stand up talking about the, the fear that there was somebody in the attic or a ghost in the attic uh-huh. and talking about like the scenario in which what he goes up there with like a pot, a pot on his head and a knife in his hand. <laughs> And he said, well, what happens if I come back down and I say, oh, it's okay, everything's fine, I murdered somebody, you know? <laughs> right. Because even these these scenarios where, like, the woman lives at the end and she's the triumphant final girl, she's just been through a traumatic, life-jarring experience, and yeah. she probably had to murder somebody. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The PTSD alone would maybe not be worth it. Yeah, so I can see where a female or any audience member who stops to think about it uh-huh. would say, you know, this is not this is still not a happy ending. It's maybe not the worst ending, but it is not a happy ending. Well, and that's basically how the argument goes, right? The uh, the the generic argument leveled against horror movies, and I, I say generic, but I should say like there is validity to this argument mm-hmm. uh, that these films feature women as victims, and they are subsequently harmful to women. Uh, to women, the monster is in fact killing them for expressing their sexuality, right? Like nine times out of ten in these movies, there's something going on with sex or just femininity that ultimately ends up with the monster killing them. Yeah, and I you know, it varies so much from picture to picture, but I feel like all anybody who's watched enough horror can definitely think of some examples where you're watching the film and you really think to yourself, come on, this is not yeah. this is just about you and your really screwed up ideas about is that gender. necessary. Yeah. Or, well, that and or just trying to sell the movie yeah. for its a uh, uh, sexy factor. Yeah. You know? I mean, as I as I said before, talking about uh, you know storytelling and and certainly with films, uh, you're, even if you don't know what you're doing, and certainly a lot of people, a lot of first time filmmakers, they go to horror because it it seems like an easy genre to play in. Even if you don't know what you're doing, you're playing with enough established pieces, enough established symbols, and enough established storytelling tropes that you can end up compa- building something, uh, assembling something that has a compelling potent or perhaps you know misleading or dangerous idea that resonates with the viewer. So yeah. you may just be putting together a picture saying, what kind of horror picture can I make over the course of a weekend with some friends, and in doing so, make something that 
that really seems to portray some horrible ideas about gender, or if you're lucky, make something that's kind of uh, transcendent. Yeah, yeah. Well, Roger Corman would be a good argument for that case, right? And like, yeah. in some cases, that guy was cranking up films in like five days or something, and I'm sure a lot of those were just like the studio being like, money, 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 money. And then in other cases, there's some Corman stuff that people go back and look at as classics. Yeah, as I, I often tell people, I, I think I enjoy bad films with moments of brilliance in them more yeah. than I enjoy like solid, great <laughs> films because right. there's something great about watching something that's kind of schlocky, kind of awful, and then out of nowhere, a great performance. Or out of nowhere, they hit upon this just brilliant idea or something that seems to accidentally resonate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I understand what you're saying. And I've, I've actually seen some more extreme um, arguments made that that the treatment of females in horror films, it's really kind of a, a pseudo-human sacrifice, this kind of like primal um, right uh, used to subjugate women under the rule of men, to, to, to sacrifice them again to this male power of violence that makes up for the, the female power of creation. Yeah, and, and I can, I, again, like I think that there's a certain amount of validity to that, but then I also think like, there are women who watch and enjoy and make horror films mm-hmm. uh and that there you know uh are some people like like I saw one academic study looking into this uh, where one uh writer made the argument that women who view horror on a regular basis are sex traders <laughs> and that they are perpetuating oppressive norms mm. uh and this is this is a topic that's uh, perfect for our sister show stuff mom never told you uh i'd love to hear their take on this but uh i that seems a little extreme to me i know lots of women who love the horror genre and participate in it and work in it whether as actors uh or makeup artists or directors you know uh, there's just all kinds of roles within those and and yes it's 2015 so those roles have definitely expanded in the last what, like almost 20 years since the original Final Girl article was written. Yeah, and you see these filmmakers uh, and various people involved in the process. You know, there's also the opportunity to play with it and change it and and figure out what is, uh, you know, what's not working uh, in, in terms of the portrayal of women in, in horror films and, and tweak it a little bit. Like uh, one of the more recent uh, films from the Soska sisters, the uh, the twin uh, yeah, Canadian I filmmakers. I their stuff. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, they, they, had, they came up a lot in the oh, yeah? Uh, uh, yeah. research. Yeah. Yeah, they, one of their more recent films, uh, I think it was See No Evil 2. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that one, but I've seen American Mary. Okay. Well, this one is... This is the one with the wrestler. Is this is yeah, Kane? yeah. This is the one with the uh, WWE's Kane in it, and okay. uh, it's it's far better than any horror film with Kane in it should be. <laughs> they do a, a, I think they do a pretty yeah. knockout job, in it, and it has some surprises in it. Uh, uh, I think American Mary is really like if you want to look at the the final girl trope, or look less at final girls and more at kind of just how women are treated in horror cinema. That's a fascinating movie. To it's watch. a really interesting film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's an interesting article in the journal Horizons that actually is just called Feminist Horror. Uh, and the, it says, it's written by a woman whose last name is Gilmore. And it says, done right, the horror genre is full of subversive possibility and a female audience, especially for young female audiences who seem to be hungry for this promise. Uh, so there's this idea there, right? Like that the... The, the process of watching these movies is in some way cathartic, right? And that it provides an imaginary space where we can confront our anxieties and work through the real life trauma that we have, the things that we're worried about in the real world through these constructions, through these narratives, which is ultimately, you know, why we tell stories is to figure out how the world works and to have a better understanding of how we exist within it. And I also want to, to draw on a, a, another study here that I, I think helps to uh, illuminate how complex it can get with some of these pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at an article titled, A Cognitive Approach to the Films of Dario Argento by Nia Edwards B. And this is interesting because Dario Argento is one of these, these uh, filmmakers. It's easy to, to really throw some stones at him yeah. in terms of the treatment of women. Uh, because he's, he, he has this kind of reputation. He's kind of uh, infamous for often playing the hands of the killer himself. Right. And he'll have these really stylized deaths of his, of uh, female victims in the films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly those stick with you, like the deaths in Suspiria in particular. Yeah, so if you, yeah, if you haven't seen any Dario Argento films, I guess Suspiria is probably the most 
famous of them, right? Yeah, that's he's, definitely the starting point, and probably, you know, arguably the stopping point. Well, yeah, me. maybe. Uh, he's best known for the sort of, yeah, stylistic, colorful uh, framing, mm-hmm. I would say, of, of his sequences, and there's just some really beautiful sets in those movies as well. Uh, the blood in Argento's movies looks like some weird kind of, like, uh, water-colored syrup or something like that. It's like there's a weird, surreal aspect to it. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately what you're getting into this and something that's really dwelled upon in a lot of the the academic uh, papers about his work, you're dealing with an an aesthetic representation of death, Um, which is interesting to think about that because you don't necessarily see that term thrown around in looking at paintings that have right. dead people in it. It's like paintings yeah. of of uh, martyred saints or painting, say, uh, the death of Cleopatra, which is a, a common uh, a subject in older paintings. Mm-hmm. You know, they show this beautiful woman that is just often nude, that has just uh, poisoned herself, you know. Um, but in films, uh, in horror films in particular, you see it a lot. And what's wrong if you're going to have a film in which people were murdered why shouldn't it be beautiful why can't the cinematography be elegant does it uh and and then in doing that to what extent does that warp the message of the picture right there's a certain point where i understand like the form and the function and the narrative all kind of come together as one thing but then when you're analyzing them or reviewing them in any kind of capacity it's also important to separate them out as well right yeah one of the things that uh, the author um uh nia edwards b uh, uh, gets into here is that it's it's easy for a lot of these papers to really just focus on that aesthetic representation of death, focus on the female death scenes themselves, as opposed to the many male deaths that take place in Argento films, and the fact that, quote, his killers are often female or queer and have only become killers due to a past trauma relating to their position as a non-male. Right. So that actually connects to another article that I read for this, which is called The Final Girl, A Few Thoughts on Feminism and Horror by a guy named Donato Totoro. Uh, and uh, you can find this on offscreen.com, actually. But basically his argument is that Final girls are an American phenomenon in horror cinema. Uh, the, it's American female characters who are murdered because they have sex. Whereas in European horror, which Daria Argento is very much a part of, those female characters murder because of their carnality, right? Hmm. Because of their femininity. And uh, that their victims are mainly male. And not only that, but the male victims are usually attracted to their female killers. So they're not disavowing their femininity in a way that um, some people argue uh, that the final girl is sort of androgynous in a way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and his big example, and I have not seen this movie, was that the same year that Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out in 1974, there was a movie that was made in Europe called The House of Whipcord. And I'm really interested in this now. Spoilers for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I guess. Uh, but that movie begins the exact same way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre ends, with a semi-comatose woman escaping from some kind of a situation that's horrific, uh, and she's picked up by a truck driver. Hmm. But in that situation, it starts from her perspective and then works back through a flashback. So there's agency there through her, and then I suspect, you know, not having seen it, I suspect... uh that Tataro's argument plays out in that the the killer in this is probably a female and there's, you know, a certain hmm. amount of uh sex involved there. Yeah, so in either case you can just really go into the deep end looking at just the cultural um roots of any given horror culture. Yeah. So this leads us to the big one, which is Carol J. Clover. She's the one who termed the word or the phrase Final Girl, and it was in her 1992 book, which is called Men, Women, and Chainsaw, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. Uh, and the basic argument goes like this, that this trope uh, flips the identification of horror movies so that male and female viewings are a little bit different than they are, would be expected to be, mm-hmm. subsequently making it more complex. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue looking into this uh, idea of the, the final girl with more specific examples and discussion of its uh, its evolution. All right, we're back. And, you know, I want to I read 
just a, a quote here from Carol J. Clover's uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, where she just really sums up uh, sort of the core thesis here, right? The image of the distressed female most likely to linger in memory is the one who did not die, the survivor or final girl. She is the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and of her own peril, who is chased, cornered, wounded, whom we see scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. She is abject terror personified. If her friends knew they were about to die only seconds before the event, the final girl lives with the knowledge for long minutes or hours. She alone looks death in the face, but she alone also finds the strength either either to stay the killer long enough to be rescued, ending A, or to kill him herself, ending B. But in either case, from 1974 on, the survivor figure has been female. So her using 1974 there, she's... I think using Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a uh, starting point. Yes. Okay. Which makes sense given the title of her book. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting looking to these studies of the final girl because as it becomes the trope, you have the undisputed main character of many films in this genre – are female, and they're enjoying the most potential character development. Granted, that character development doesn't necessarily take place in any yeah. in any, in any uh, notable degree, but the potential is there. She becomes the central point of viewer identification in the film. Yeah, so there's another side to this argument. So some people argue against Clover's stipulations here. So I think it's important as we go mm-hmm. along here to sort of throw in their two cents and then, you know, y- you like us can sort of make up your own mind about it. The other side goes like this, that these films are all made by different creators and yet somehow they consistently all characterize the heroine as powerful at the end and that some sh- somehow she's a figure who questions authority and is always determining the course of her own life. And in fact, she has agency more than any of the other characters mm-hmm. do, other than maybe the killer. Uh, and they, you know, the, the final girls are the ones that make things happen and control events. Uh, and then, you know, often the argument is made that that's within a system of patriarchy, right? So if we're really looking at gender influence in these films, you know, frankly, uh, they're in patriarchal settings and then the killers are mostly male, right? Yeah, they're in a they're in a male dominated world, or very particular, they're often in an adult male yeah. um, controlled world. And suddenly they're encountering this masculine horror, this terror that is often a product of that world. Nobody in the adult world and the male powered world are going to actually help them. Yeah. They tell them, "Oh, there's a killer in the woods," and they go, "Ah, it's nothing. Oh, there's right. somebody trying to kill me in my dreams. Ah, go to sleep." Right. It's always the like figures in authority, the sheriff or the the doctor in the mental institution or whatever. Right? Yeah. Even yeah. if they try to help, you know, they're going to get knocked out. Yeah. So the final girls, as Clover presents them, are sort of known for their courage, their resourcefulness. They've got investigative abilities that help them save the day. But Clover thinks that the important thing is this, is that as viewers, when we're watching it, we start off watching these movies by sharing the perspective of the killer, right? So Mm -hmm. think of it from uh, Halloween is a perfect example of this. Like the camera is actually Michael Myers' viewpoint, right? But we shift partway through the film to the final girl. We start identifying with her rather than the killer. So the final girl is always female, but at the same time, they have kind of a, you know, quote unquote maleness for the audience. Uh, So, you know, uh, Clover argues this isn't necessarily a development, right? That they in some way are used as a vehicle for male viewers sort of sadomasochistic fantasies, especially if you're identifying with the killer. You're looking through the killer's eyes as he, you know, uh, saws his way through uh, hordes of women. Yeah, I mean, there's often a, a very phallic aspect of it. You know, the mm-hmm. killer is stabbing, the killer is impaling, the ca- killer is is using some sort of weapon that is some sort of, a, a, you know, a phallic uh, uh, symbol. Yeah, yeah. Well, so she says male viewers see the final girl's traits as inherently male, which ultimately complicates the gender understanding going mm-hmm. on in these films. So she argues, well, wait a minute, is the final girl somehow hermaphroditic or androgynous? You know, when she becomes her own savior, she subsequently becomes a hero and that the male viewer identifies with heroes as being male. 
and so that's where sometimes this like boyishness gets mixed in. There's an argument, and I don't agree with this. Like I, some of this, some of this stuff, I think also. Uh, you know, let's keep in mind that Clover was writing in 1992. It's 2015. There's been a lot of horror movies mm-hmm. that have been made since then that that subvert this. But uh, there's an argument that that uh, final girls tend to have gender ambiguous names, and so like her examples are Lori, Terry, Stretch, Will, Joey, and Max. I don't know where all of those come from. Lori's obviously from Halloween, and Stretch is from Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. But Lori, I don't think of Lori necessarily as being gender ambiguous. And then, you know, I think, let's think of the classic examples. Like Ellen, Sarah, Nancy, yeah. Sally. Those are all fairly female names. So I don't know that I, I, I buy into that argument necessarily. But either way, Clover says that the final girl is desexualized and that she's either unavailable or she's reluctant to be in relationships, right? So that ties into the she's probably one she not one of the ones who has sex, which doesn't lead to her being murdered by the monster. Um, sometimes they're virgins, sometimes they're celibate. There's an argument to be made here though too, right? Which is do heterosexual relationships prove a woman's femininity? It doesn't necessitate mm-hmm. that you be female. You can be female without participating in sex, right? So right. there's complicated things in there going on as well about like our understanding of sex and what, like how femininity can be expressed in film as well. Yeah, because certainly we have some, still some very culturally mixed up ideas about the, about the answer to that question. Yeah. But, so Carol's ultimate argument is that, uh, uh, that it reverses, or sorry, Carol Clover. I shouldn't just like, yeah, you know Carol. Uh, Clover's argument is that the, the function of the final girl is that she reverses the spectator's gaze. So we originally see through the killer's eyes at the beginning, like I said. And are even often kind of made to root for the killer yep. as the killer dispatches, you know, representations of the worst teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But then when we do see the killer, it's through the final girl's eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's with clarity, too. Uh, and that increases more and more towards the end of a film, right? So if you think about Halloween, it doesn't like start off right with you just seeing Michael Myers running around with a with a, a hatchet or something like right. that, right? It slowly builds up to the point where he's he's omnipresent, um, and that you know. So there's a question here about like, okay, we looked at that study earlier that said that women identify with the victims. So does that then mean that the only a uh, viewer who's experiencing this gaze gender reversal is the male viewer then and you know uh, that that I'm going to leave that question hanging out there I think Clover leaves it hanging out there too I don't know I don't know what the answer is Yeah definitely would love to hear from uh for from both male and female horror fans but particularly mm-hmm. female horror fans in regards yeah. to this Yeah absolutely So let's just take a quick walk through some of the the big touchstone moments in the evolution of the final girl. Mm -hmm. So even before we get the get final girl going properly, we have to mention Psycho, which is just an example in which the female is obliterated. Like she doesn't stand chance. And Psycho, I think maybe I I don't know if I would call it the first slasher film, but it's definitely one of you know the classic. Yeah. uh, In many years before Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but. there is an inherent gender fluidity in the story itself. You know, if you if you don't know Psycho, the idea of sort of bouncing back and forth between the identity of male and female as a killer mm-hmm. is uh, is 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 part of the story there. But yes, absolutely, like the women are killed in that, and not only does it obliterate them, but it obliterates sort of the female identity uh, of who we think the killer is in that movie. All right, so we've we've mentioned Sally Hardesty from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre already, mm-hmm. 1974, and she kind of survives just through sheer, almost like through sheer outrage and sheer terror. She just screams her head off, yeah. runs, doesn't really fight back, but basically just runs and yeah. and then survives. Yeah, Sally doesn't like do anything particularly active to. Uh, lead to her own escape other than just kind of running and, and ending up in the right place at the right time where she yeah. jump into the back of a truck. But then Laurie Strode in 78 in yeah. John Carpenter's Halloween. This is a real turning point because 
she does her share of screaming and running, but she reaches the point where she turns and fights back, where yeah. she actually picks up the knife and wields the killer's own weapon against him. Yeah, this is the Jamie Lee Curtis character. Mm-hmm. I'll always remember that scene where she's in the closet and she's she she finally attacks back, you know, with the the uh, long knife and, and cuts Michael Myers. Yeah, and so. Um, according to uh, to Clover, as uh, as we get into the '80s, you know, certainly there's that dip in quality that we just discussed earlier. But you see more and more um, situations where the qualities of the character are enabling her, of all the characters, to survive. Uh, she has something that would otherwise seem unsurvivable, and it's not just right. random, like oh, this one happened to survive. No, this is the one that had the character that would allow her to survive. Mm-hmm. And she's even like you see this kind of transformation. That's it's kind of uh, uh, Nietzschean, right? That you know from the from life school of war, uh, what does not kill me makes me stronger. So they they kind right. of transform into this new survivor person through the experience. Although there is kind of a weird thing, especially with the franchises that have so many sequels like like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street where the final girls of a previous movie will show up at the beginning of the sequel <laughs> and somehow be dispatched relatively quickly. Yeah. Uh, but they do, in some instances, maybe we'll get to this, they do sort of bestow their final girl like role uh, upon a new final girl. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of pass it off. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nightmare movies are frequently mentioned um, because, uh, especially in the first one or two, you know, we see Nancy Thompson mm-hmm. going on a journey of exploration. So it's not just about running from the enemy, but also understanding it, figuring out how it works, diving into its world a little bit, in this case, into the world of dream in order to to, to figure out how to stop this monstrous adversary. Yeah, she really is like the investigator. She figures out the like secret history of Freddy Krueger that kind of reveals it all. Mm hmm. Um, and another example similar to this is the, the Hellraiser films, mm-hmm. where you have a, just a very powerful adversary in the form of the Cenobites, and uh, final girl Christy Cotton survives in large part by her wits, by doing a little bargaining, and also you know, a little literal puzzle uh, right. solving with the lament configuration. Yeah, Hellraiser is a tough one for me because... I don't necessarily think of Hellraiser as being a slasher film, and I don't think of Christy as being, or Kirsty as being a final girl, I guess, because mm-hmm. I think of the Cenobites as being like, I genderless in a way. Like, I know that they do have gender. I know there are, like, there's a female Cenobite, and, and Pinhead is very much male, but they're, is more going on with them than just like a man chasing people around with a knife. I would right? agree. Yeah, there's certainly Clive Barker was coming from a more fantastic yeah. uh, point of view when he created them. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Now we've already mentioned uh, Alien, but there, but the the case that's often made here is that that Ripley's surviving through adaptation, mm-hmm. pure survivalism. So a lot of a lot of situations are thrown at her, be it an out of controlled android or this, you know, perfect masculine empowered phallic organism coming right. at her, and she's able to just to roll with it and do what has to be done to survive. Yeah, and so one thing that's worth pointing out with that we were talking about the the naming conventions um, is that. When the screenplay for Alien was written, none of the roles had genders assigned to them. So, like, the the name Ripley wasn't necessarily male or female, but when it was cast, they ultimately went with Sigourney Weaver. I think that was with all the roles. I don't think that that was necessarily just with the Ripley character. And we were talking about this before the before recording. I can't remember if the if her first name Ellen was applied in Alien, or if that didn't show up until Aliens. Yeah, that's. I may be misremembering it, but I think that's how it went. Okay. Um, now, when we get into the Friday Thirteenth, uh, Friday the Thirteenth franchise, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of room for discussion there too, as pointed out by uh, Sarah Trinkansky in uh, the piece. I believe we already referenced this: "Final Girls and Terrible Youth Transgression" in 1980s uh, slasher horror. Yeah, this is a great piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in the Journal of Popular Film and Television. And uh, I really liked it because not only did it uh, apply Clover's theories, but then it sort of brought them forward. And it was almost like a nice literature review of sort of what had gone on in these studies up until then. And then also presenting her own, you know, uh, uh, theoretical application to this. Yeah. And and, uh, uh, Trinkansky does a a good job of 
of just talking about like the evolution within the Friday the 13th franchise alone. Mm-hmm. For instance, one of the early examples of Jenny Field, who, uh, <laughs> who I believe is, uh, we're using as the, the cover art for this episode, uh, with the pitchfork. Yeah. Uh, in Friday the 13th 2, she impersonates Jason's dead mother, uh, in order to outwit the killer and eventually yeah. brandishes a pitchfork at him. Eventually we get to Friday the 13th part 7, in which Tina Shepard uses not, not only does she stand up to the the adversary here, she uses telekinetic powers against the monster. She collapses the house. She raises the dead. So ultimately, yeah. she out-supernaturals the supernatural adversary instead of merely outrunning or outfighting him. Yeah, I would say that that is probably the height of, of Clover's argument of uh, the final girl becoming more and more powerful, right? Like, in that it's been a, a long time since I've seen that movie, but I very, you know, specifically remember that it's established that this girl has these, like, magical powers right from the beginning yeah. you know, to sort of give Freddy a, uh, uh, a level playing field, I guess, when, yeah. when it comes to the showdown. Like, I remember her, like, telekinetically throwing nails into his face and stuff like that. Isn't she also, like, uh, sort of responsible for bringing him back or something like that? <laughs> like, I think... Spoilers for, uh, again, another movie that's like maybe 30 years old. But if I remember correctly, I think like Freddy or no, sorry, Jason is tied to the bottom of Crystal Lake with like a boulder or something. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to bring back her dad and she accidentally raises Jason Voorhees from the dead instead. And so she's the reason why he's able to run amok again. Huh. That's interesting. And you know that. That, I wonder to what extent that plays into this other point that we've already touched on a little bit, but uh, uh, uh discusses this uh, at length, is that you see this idea that youths in the horror films are subjugated by an, an adult world mm-hmm. and assaulted by the very monsters that the adult world creates. And in this case, uh, with... Um, with uh, with this uh, psychic Tina Shepard, like is she she's kind of accidentally engaging in that world and creating the problems? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it it becomes kind of complicated the more layers of franchising myth you layer over it. I For guess. years, I've always said that that was my favorite of the Friday the Thirteenth, but I've never really unpacked it. Maybe it's because of that. It was just more interesting because the, the she had so much more agency than the the other final girls did. And maybe what's it's kind of, you know you end up you're rooting so much for the final girls and here's a picture where suddenly the final girl doesn't just have like the the minimum num- number of tools to defeat yeah. the adversary, but she has like a war chest of yeah. supernatural tools. Yeah. And still it takes like the course of the picture for her to deal with him, so. Right. There yeah, yeah. Now, another uh, great point that uh, Trinkansky points out that is, is that there's a, a paradox here with the final girl. So the heroines must recognize, this is a quote, heroines must recognize the source of the monsters to defeat it, identify with the monster, and on some level accept its rebellion, but realize that it too is a product of disciplinary power and must be defeated. So that kind of gets into this whole exploration of the monster, figuring out the monster, and to a certain extent, um, uh, being able to uh, identify with it in order to defeat it. Yeah, and there's also an argument to be made, you know, going back to Clover's thing, that uh, I keep wanting to say Clover field. Uh, <laughs> going back to Clover's original argument is that the final girls themselves, as they evolve from the 70s into the 80s and then to where we are today, they don't always show any kind of special skills, right, that ensure their survival. It's almost like they're picked at random sometimes from the the cast. Sally is certainly an example of that, right? Like, why would she survive any more than any of the other characters? Because she's more, I don't know, she's more beautiful. Maybe. Maybe maybe that was, yeah, yeah, who knows what was going through Toby Hooper's head. But then, you know, uh, you get to, for instance, like the Tina character in Friday the 13th, and of course, she's the one who survives because she's the one who can throw nails with her mind. Uh, yeah. Whereas the others don't really have that <laughs> that capability. I would like to see a horror film that that turns that on its head and has the the psychic nail throwing girl. She ends up like dying. She's second. The, yeah. And then the <laughs> final girl's like, why why me? I, I I don't have any of the skills necessary. I think um, Cabin in the Woods, to a certain extent, played around with that. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh, one other thing I want to touch on here uh, before we get into some outro thoughts. Um, 
Robert J. King, Ph.D., has an interesting piece on psychology today titled uh, Damsels Causing Distress. And he, he kind of gets into gets into some of the final girl stuff we've mentioned already. But he draws in uh, this example from uh, Bantu mythology uh, in uh, Africa, uh, where they have this mythological figure called the wise girl who uh, regularly saves the day uh, for uh, for the for the for the tribes people from various ogres and monsters um and uh and he in particular there's one called uh, uh Ginko Amdima of the uh, Josa uh, that he says uh, stars in a series of quote body scatological and violent tales with themes of murder and blood vengeance sex birth and the balance of power between men and women so she mm. sees the danger from the start and everybody ignores her maybe they even ridicule her but then through courage and resourcefulness she defeats the uh, ogre or the monster or what have you. So she's smart. She investigates uh, the monster, ends up killing the monster, and provides a point of identification for the audience. So, Yeah, I mean, so that just kind of gets back to our original point, that this is not just a U.S. phenomenon, and that also just like that horror stories in general in human culture, whether it's here or in Africa or Europe, wherever, that they serve a purpose, a larger purpose of sort of you know, uh, consolidating the anxieties of that culture and putting them in a place that you can confront them. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. The final girl in an, in essence, in a nutshell, uh, as is always the case with film studies, uh, you know, it's important to note that, you know, we're, we're talking about an entire genre here and often to talk about the genre, you have to talk about particulars mm-hmm. and you can really go down the rabbit hole talking about individual films and maybe lose sight of the larger the larger picture yeah yeah i think that's true i mean as anybody who has uh scrolled through netflix's horror genre selection knows there's a small sampling of classic amazing horror movies and then there's just like a treasure trove of terrible one star yeah uh direct-to-video horror movies that are for the most part, misogynistic garbage. Yeah, there's plenty of that out there, uh, to be sure. uh, You know, and and then there are also people that that charge that just having this trope of the final girl out there and even Mm -hmm. having some of the scholarship surrounding it, that it gives people an excuse to engage in cinematic uh, sadism. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it it just goes round and round, right? It becomes a very uh, complicated loop. I'm sure it will be an argument that's, uh, you know, will be around as long as horror stories are probably around for. Um, And to tie that in, speaking of which, uh, I just want to remind our audience that don't forget about monster science. That's right. Because we have a monster science. Well, I say we, it's really... uh, uh, Robert and our uh, other our host, Dr. Anton Jessup, have and Tyler, Tyler, uh, and, and our producer yeah, Tyler, producer Tyler, plus uh, a big hand in it, have an episode on Jason Voorhees, right? And, yes. And uh, wait, is there a Michael Myers? Episode? Yeah, we did a we had Jason Voorhees, and we did a Michael Myers. Okay. Yeah. So there's more to be said about the science of slasher <laughs> films, uh, and you can watch those on uh, stufftoblowyourmind.com. Or uh, we're going to be posting them all throughout October on our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Uh, and I would personally like to hear from our audience on your thoughts about the whole final girl thing. So what do you think? Do you think Clover was right about, you know, the shifting of the uh, male gaze turning gender into a more complicated thing in horror movies? Or do you think that that's all just navel gazing and that uh, r- really that these movies are ultimately about uh, getting off on hurting women? Yeah, we'd love to hear from everyone on this. And as always, check us out, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. I'll make sure that the landing page for this episode includes links out to some of the uh, references that we've made here, some of the uh, the uh, related content on the site, as well as uh, some off-site material. So let us know and reach out to us. And don't forget that you can always hit us up at the email address blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 